that it is our responsibility to take care of people who are struggling. And we say it out loud, it sounds so obvious, but I, I didn't live that way and I, I didn't feel that way until I myself experienced it. You're listening to WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia. This is Real Fiction. I'm Lori Messing-McGarry. My guest today is Brian Platzer. His new novel is The Body Politic, published by Atria. I've been saving this conversation because as the coronavirus pandemic wears on, Brian's insights into confusion, loneliness, and uncertainty feel so right for this moment in history that I had to think about all of it. And now, as many summer classes and camps are canceled around the country, this pandemic is taxing families in unexpected ways. Brian is a rare guest who can speak to these societal conditions as a middle school teacher, a parent, and as a person who suffers from a chronic illness, which was documented in two New York Times articles. He also happened to write a great novel that draws from his life experiences. And to add to the mix, we are in an election year, which brings its own anxieties. The body politic has something to say about that, too. Today's conversation is the first of a two-part discussion. After today's broadcast, you can find more about Brian Platzer and all archived episodes on realfictionradio.com. I'll be back with Brian in just a minute. My guest today is Brian Platzer. His second novel, The Body Politic, was just released. The story follows four longtime friends as they navigate love, forgiveness, and chronic illness, while the world around them changes beyond recognition. If that sounds like a timely novel to read now, it is. Joining me from Brooklyn, New York, is Brian Platzer. Brian, welcome to the program. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you. The protagonist in The Body Politic is a character named David. He suffers from an illness that's difficult to diagnose. And uh, what I didn't just mention, but I will now, is that you have been open about your own struggle with a chronic form of dizziness, and it has a very long name. It does. This is the subject of a recent New York Times piece you wrote. Can you tell us something about how your personal journey and this novel came together? Absolutely. I woke up a few years ago um, dizzy, uh, incapacitatedly so, where um, I couldn't really see out of my right eye. I couldn't walk without the feeling that I was going to fall down. And I experienced a kind of brain fog and discombobulation, which meant that I couldn't I couldn't think straight. I couldn't get my thoughts in order. I couldn't write. I couldn't teach. I couldn't be alone with my kids for fear that I would fall and one of them would, would need help. And it was it was a multi-year process to to get the correct diagnosis and with that, the correct psychopharmaceuticals to help mitigate my symptoms. Right. For a good two years there, I was um, bedridden for months at a time and in general, just out of societal commission. You know, I, I was... I was living a, uh, a, a shell of my life um, alone, unable to, to participate in, in daily routine. And when I finally came out of it with the, the medication that now gives me a, a five, six hour clarity window for which I am very, very grateful, I, I, tried to, I tried to get back into that time because I was so you know 
focused on the day to day of of getting through every moment that I, I think I missed a lot of what what it felt like living it, what it felt like for those around me uh, taking care of me and trying to bear with me and, and indulge me and and help me out through that time and. And the novel became a bit of an exercise in empathy, where not only did it help me relive um, my experience of of really the the combination of the daily suffering and the existential fear of not knowing if that that suffering would last for a month or a year or, or the rest of my life, but also it helped me think through what it was like to be my wife, you know, during that period of time, or my kids, or my mom, or business partner, in a way that at the time I was too myopic or too selfish or just too much struggling with my own um, pain to uh, to really focus on. And you're a lifelong New Yorker. Do I have that right? That's right. I, I was born in Manhattan, went to school, high school, college, and now I ended up as far away as Brooklyn, but, but New York is my town. And the book I want to make clear is largely set in New York City. We do get some some Washington, D.C. action with the campaign um, scenes, but largely it's set in New York City in alternating time periods in the years following 9-11 and then a bit more recently after the 2016 election. So we know that you live in Brooklyn. Can I, before we talk more about the novel, can I just ask you, how is it feeling right now in your neighborhood? It's pretty surreal. Um, it's It's the combination of sort of the the madhouse chaos anxiety of having a four-year-old and a six-year-old son at home with a wife who works full-time and me trying to teach my classes um, online. So inside the house is a frenetic mess and outside the house is just silent in a way I've never seen the city before. So it's a a disturbing contrast. Luckily, so far we've been, you know, for for the most part healthy and um, maintaining some degree of sanity, but but it's every day is a, is a... a riot to try to get through. And then you see the press conference and you feel lucky that all you're trying to do is, is, uh, you know, harness your, your kid's energy. So it's, it's surreal. Right. And there's a a line in the book or a passage in the book. Um, and I remember it very, very clearly. It was, I think it's in the point of view of Tess and she says, everything feels hard. Just going to subway feels hard. Doing a load of laundry feels hard. Everything feels kind of hard right now. That's absolutely right. And, and that's something that I experienced with chronic illness um, in sort of a literal way where, you know, taking a shower was physically difficult and speaking on the phone was physically difficult. But I, I know that my wife um, felt that in a, in a, in a more general way, uh, in, in sort of everything, every decision became difficult, how to take care of the kids long-term, what her professional life was going to be. The, the character in the book, the wife of the suffering uh, David is about to have her big break on on Broadway and she decides that she needs to be at home taking care of the family. And, and there definitely is a quality like that that I felt only two times before this uh, coronavirus epidemic. The first was after 9-11 when everything came to a, a similar quiet standstill in the city. And remember, there's a period of time where you didn't know whether it was going to keep on getting worse and ratcheting up, where there was a, a disconcerting feeling that maybe our water will be poisoned next or, you know, what will the next um, disaster be? And then I, I understand the, the ridiculousness of this comparison to, to many listeners, but in the subways of New York, I felt a comparable feeling of, of disjarring difficulty and, and just a, 
frenetic confusion after Trump's election. I think it's a sense of confusion, dis- discombobulation. Everything is difficult and maybe not what it seemed that I'm seeing now as society tries to deal with this uh, global pandemic. When you're going through something the entire world is experiencing and you have an illness, as your protagonist David does in the book, it makes it all the more, I don't know, just, uh, I guess, difficult or hard to process. It, that's that's exactly right. And I, we're kind of, I mean, I think we're just still in a jumble of when is this going to end? And are we, is this one of those big moments in our history when things are going to change? A few weeks or a few months are going to result in decades of change in this country and in the world. And that sense of uncertainty is so important because even the way that we talk about medicine as a society tends to be there's somebody is sick and we need to find the cure and then somebody will be okay. And if that doesn't work, somebody will die, you know, and that's the way that we're talking about the coronavirus for the most part. Um, And that's the way a lot of doctors I saw, you know, initially for the first year or two looked at my condition. And it's the it's the sort of zero sum game of it where you have the problem, we're going to do a bunch of tests, find the problem and solve the problem. But for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Americans who were dealing with chronic illness before this and now are either anxious about the possibility of the coronavirus or um, you know, dealing with it in a, in a literal, uh, physical way now, it's there's just so much uncertainty baked in. So we are the, the medical system that is accustomed to diagnosing and curing is in this intermediate state. And that's, that's what I was dealing with for, for so long. The idea that people knew I was sick, but didn't quite know what the uh, solution would be. And I didn't know whether this uncertainty, the one that we're all living under in a society now, would go on forever or not. And I think that we are especially poorly conditioned to deal with that sense of uncertainty on top of the the virus or the pain. Absolutely. And something that you mention in both your uh, New York Times article and as it comes through in the book, it can take, it typically takes many visits to physicians, specialists to come up with a proper diagnosis. And that was your experience as well. This is just baffling to me. Why with all of the modern medicine we have, is it so difficult to pinpoint a diagnosis? And you've been clear that you had access to some of the best specialists in New York City, and it was still difficult. Exactly. I I think the doctors are so good and so well-trained and have such wonderful equipment to deal with the the plumbing of the body. You know, like we're, if you see a broken bone, we know how to fix it. If there's an artery that's clogged, we know how to either remove the clog or find a workaround against it. But when you deal with systems, like if you know anybody with irritable bowel syndrome or Crohn's disease, for example, that doesn't exist alone in the stomach or in the brain. It's a combination of those two organs. Similarly with me, with the vestibular illness, it doesn't only exist in the inner ear or in the brain or in the eyes or in the muscles, but it's the the system that's not working. And for whatever reason, we as a society just haven't developed as successful a um, series of, of checks to, to figure out how best to act in the face of, of these uh, system problems. Um, partially, I think it's an issue of what insurance uh, pays for. They're very good at paying for uh, tests, less good for 
a physician to spend the hours necessary in conversation with a patient to get to the the root um, of an illness. And also in these areas where tests don't reveal exactly the problem, we aren't as good at um, making sure that the patient's symptoms are managed. We are very, very good at cures. We are less good at managing symptoms, which is why in the book I I liked to contrast David, who is living in that frustrated state, with the people around him who have either trauma in their past or confrontations that they've been waiting to um, to enact. And sort of they see David in this state of paralysis and frustration, and they see the country in this state of confusion, and it leads them to want to confront these difficult moments in their past because there is an individual they can have the conversation with, or there is a, a political move that somebody can right. make. So my, my hope is that the reader has the combined feeling of, you know, the the discomfort of one of the characters and the potential excitement, if that's not too silly a word, of, of trying to see whether the other characters are able to overcome their pasts and their um, pain in a way that, that David is not. We really are all in that web where we're in that feeling of discomfort. Am I really sick or is this something in my head? And David is a character who we get to walk through his journey of finding a diagnosis. And he tries traditional medicine and holistic medicine. And there's a passage, I think it's on page 56, that really struck me. Um, You have a line that says, trust the unfamiliar, change is safe. Uh, But David ends up feeling worse after these kind of holistic body work sessions that are intended to cure his symptoms. So when you created this character, um, and clearly you were reflecting on kind of the mind-body connection for well-being, but what's a good balance for you? And maybe what's a good balance for some other individuals that you've met with chronic illness? It's fascinating. So I wrote my first article on chronic dizziness and illness in general for the New York Times when I was really in the the middle of it. Um, It was a personal essay about my own experience. And I received thousands and thousands of responses, half of which were from women uh, almost entirely saying, I'm so happy someone has written about this in the New York Times to show my blank that I'm not making it up. And then they would fill in the blank with either their uh, spouse, their boyfriend, their boss, or their doctor. You know, so there was that that sense of they needed validation because so many of them went into a medical or a relationship situation and they were disbelieved. So that was that was part of the response. The other half was were the people who contacted me to say, have you tried, you know, and then fill in the blank. And it was everything from, have you seen this doctor on 67th street to Mm. peppermint oil cured me, or you should drink, you know, 25 glasses of water or try, you know, talking to this uh, chiropractor who has this method that only, and I tried it all. I mean, I'm, I'm by disposition a little bit more cynical, probably coming into this than I, I was in the middle of it where I was just so desperate for, for any, cure. And, and these practitioners fascinate me because I, I think that there is such a fine line between a true believing healer who believes that he or she has tapped into something that is a combination of psychological and, and physical and can find the answer for these patients who have suffered, suffered for so long, and uh, straight charlatans who know that mm. when people are so desperate for an answer, 
they are willing, I was willing to go back week after week after week and take supplements and be told, you know, I can feel that your energy is, is less crossed over now than it was the week before. And, and people are so desperate for it. And I, I, I still don't know. I mean, I, I think that most of them probably are doing this work with good faith, but it's, it's difficult for me on the other side who saw, you know, dozens of, of practitioners of both uh, Western and, and holistic medicine, um, so many of whom came to me with the same certainty. You know, that, that was part of the fascinating aspect all, also. Like a, a neurosurgeon saw me and said, oh, I see what you, your problem is. I can fix it. You know, this will be gone in six months. Right. And then six months later, an acupuncturist said, oh, I see people all the time like you. No worries. You finally like found the right person. I can fix it. And then six months later, that didn't work either. And what, what did for me was a combination of straight psychopharmaceuticals, you know, I'm on heavy doses of medications off-label that are, are used on me for um, reasons that are uh, typically not what they're prescribed for. And they saw a wonderful uh, psychologist who deals only with chronically ill patients who helped me um, it, it understand the degree to which I was um, depressed. And, th- and that depression was uh, creating an additional layer of pain that that was unnecessary. Where I, I feel like I was suffering so much, and there was almost a need in me to 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 make a performance of of my pain and anger and frustration to everybody all the time because I I think I think I felt so lonely with it. And and people have those um, reactions to chronic illness, but also when they're in mourning for loved ones, you know, after divorce, when they experience a loss of job. I, I think a lot of us are. Our, our instinct is to go into a, a kind of hibernation where, you know, like right now I'm in pain, I'm going to shut down and I'll begin to live life again when, when this is over. And I see people doing the same right now with the, the coronavirus where they're like, I just have to, to shut myself in, in the house and close my eyes and cover my ears and scream until we, we get the green light again. And, and by doing that, I was, and I think a lot of people are, adding an additional layer of anxiety and, and pain to their life. So mm. for me, it was the combination of finding the right doctor who sent me to the other right doctor who was able to medicate me with a, a little bit of an opening up and, and allowing myself to, to laugh at a joke I found funny or to, to take joy in the moments I was able to enjoy my kids as opposed to see those moments as just a reminder of all the other moments I couldn't enjoy. So it has been a layered approach and it isn't something that is necessarily static. It has to, does it, does it change for you from year to year or from day to day? I mean, it, there, there are so many factors, um, how I sleep the, the night before, whether there's anxiety in, in my life, whether I need to be around with people, around people all day, every day, because I'm still, my brain, for whatever reason, gets overstimulated by regular interaction. So if I can escape and be by myself for a couple hours, um, I'm, I'm really in pretty good shape. And I, I've built that into my workday. But that means that that weekends, which um, in some ways are a respite from my workday, are more difficult because there are all the, the familial responsibilities on top. So it's, it's a constant feeling of flux where there are definitely better days than others, better weeks and, and better months. But I was never a grateful for every day kind of guy. And, and now I'm just so happy that I can have this conversation with you and, and teach a little bit and, and write a little bit and hang out with my kids that, you know, those, those little fluctuations are, are a whole lot less important than they, they used to be. Well, this is so um, 
important to hear right now because I think there's a great deal of pressure um, during the coronavirus to feel that we, there's a lot of pressure to go to our interior selves and transform and think about how we can come out of this as better people. And that's not, that's not terribly easy for some people to do. That's not easy for some people to do in general. And that's especially not easy without the support systems they're used to, you know, in a confined space and with new responsibilities, whether it's you know, cleaning the house if people can afford to have somebody come once a month to do that for them or constantly be with their kids and feel the responsibility to teach their kids and make sure that they're not falling behind. Or if it's just all of a sudden spending all your time with a family member that you're used to having some distance from. I, I think you're absolutely right that people are feeling pressure to be calm and improve themselves at the very time when it is just logistically and psychologically most difficult. I want to ask you about something else in the book from a slightly different angle. The character, David, um, as we've been mentioning, um, he suffers from pain, some nausea and anxiety, and it's really unnerving to read some of these passages. And you had a comment or two, or the, the scene talks about the relativity of pain, both physical and emotional, based on expectations kind of that has to do with a, a person's geography, maybe the mortality rate within a particular country. And I have been thinking about this a lot since I read your novel. And I'm, I'd love to know your thoughts about this. Do you think Americans, people in this country need to think a little more realistically about our vulnerability? I think that many of us, I certainly did before I um, lost the, the ability to participate in regular life, thought that people who were accustomed to suffering somehow had learned to deal with it. You, you know, that like it, it was that that somebody who is homeless, for example, isn't constantly realizing that he's homeless. He, he's come to terms with his homelessness. And, and then, you know, his life just reaches a, a new status quo or, or equilibrium in the same way that my life reaches a new status quo or equilibrium based on if my kid, you know, is struggling at school or not. And I'm, I'm just so embarrassed and, and ashamed to have had those thoughts but before my own suffering, where it's, it's so clear on this side of it that there are some people who are incredibly um, blessed to live without physical and emotional pain all the time. And other people are constantly struggling. And, and I, I think it, to, to some extent, I understand why I, I felt that way beforehand, that it's, it's very difficult to live in a world where you look around and, and you see people in pain. And, and, and it, it's hard to do anything else if, if you acknowledge the extent to which they're in pain, and then worry about them and, and think about changing the system. And I the way that all of our lives, or the way that most of our lives are set up is, is that we are looking after ourselves and a few loved ones and maybe some friends and maybe a community or a school. But, but the, the pain of, of strangers and people we don't know is just outside the realm of, of areas we can focus on. But I, I do, I, I have come to the conclusion um, after experiencing what it's like to be in in, in constant pain and, and anxiety every day for, for years on end, that, that it is our responsibility to take care of people who are struggling. And you say it out loud, it sounds so obvious, but I, I didn't live that way. And I, I didn't feel that way until I myself experienced it. I, I was sheltered and I'm, 
I'm embarrassed the extent to, to which I was. I have heard a number of people say that they didn't have a community in place when they needed it. And the time to start building that community is long before you ever need it. And I think we're getting a real lesson right now because everyone's feeling quite isolated and we've had to make life adjustments at, at such a shockingly fast pace. We we almost don't know what's what has hit us. I, I absolutely agree. I mean, of, of course, there are always people who are struggling. And, and I'm not at all saying that the immigrant who is separated from his child, you know, eight years ago had, had it good. But I think as a, as a majority or as a, a visible majority, at least, the economy was good for the most part. People um, around whom I spent time were happy, you know, we were happy with the president. Our, our lives were, were able to be um, selfish and cordoned off a little bit. Um, so when Trump was elected for some people, it was such a punch to the gut. And, and, and you saw the the anger, indignation, and confusion come out. You remember those those women's marches that feel like a, a thousand years ago now. It, that that was a sense of, of people saying, I, "I wasn't prepared for this, and now I want to fight a- against it." And I, I think in some ways it's a different world, but it's not so different from the fact that our government let the contract and all the ventilators expire. You know, because it's the idea that like we haven't needed all these extra ventilators for for years and years and years. We we, we can we can settle into our our own lives without necessarily planning for a worse time or a more difficult time or without even the imagination to 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 think forward in, into that realm of of discomfort. And I think now more definitely more so than than anything I've experienced and maybe anything we've experienced for decades, we're all trying to figure it out together that that sort of what it, you mentioned earlier whether this will change society um, in a in a more dramatic way than we can even conceive of now. And I I do think it, it might, whether it's politically in looking at the role of government or societally in, in the role of 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 neighborhoods and, and just the comfort one can take with with one another um, that maybe too many too many of us have taken for granted for for too long. You've been listening to Real Fiction on WERA ninety six point seven FM. Next week, I'll return with more from Brian Platzer as we talk about political disillusionment and dealing with the pressure to achieve at a time when basic human needs are more important. Here's a peek at next week's discussion. I think that as a parent and teacher, the the only real advice I can give now is to do your best to figure out what the kid is lacking in his or her life and provide that for him or her. And then you can deal with, you know, memorizing the the Civil War dates or even learning to construct the the perfect paragraph another time. All Real Fiction episodes are archived on realfictionradio.com. You can also find me on the Facebook page at Real Fiction Radio. Thanks for listening.